Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode two of Faith Practically. I am Darian Claxton, and in this session, we'll explore the ways in which we put limits on God, particularly in our prayer life. I'll tell you the invaluable lesson I learned being stranded in an airport in the Middle East, and we'll see how talking to yourself can actually turn into a powerful means of spiritual growth. But first, let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. In Christ's name, amen. If you did not watch episode one, I would strongly recommend that you do it before you watch this one. Uh, in that episode, we kind of lay the groundwork for a lot of the things we'll be discussing today. So it'll be more clearly, it'll be more clear if you do that first. Today's session is about putting limits on God. It's actually part one of a two-part series. Going back to the last episode, one of the reasons we saw that we struggle in our prayer life and in hearing God's voice when we pray is because we have developed this habit over time to rely on ourselves instead of God. Because we don't think he's as capable as we are of doing things ourselves. And when it comes to putting limits on God, there are two categories. The, the first one is the one, is the easy one. That's the gimme. The things we think that are too possible impossible for God to do. We think he's too limited to do the impossible. And the second category are the things we think are too possible for us to do. These are things that we, we were comfortable with, things that we're capable of doing, so we don't turn them over to God, we do them ourselves. And that's the one we'll be focusing on in this session. So in that vein, I'll tell you about uh, the lesson I learned that God taught you while I was overseas. Uh, as you know from the last episode, I'm a software developer, business owner, been doing this for about seven years. And um, in 2015, uh, I was overseas. When we sell our software to clients, we sell our software, they fly me out to train their trainers, to train their supervisors on using our software, and I also teach them how to present the material to their trainees. So. Several years ago, I'm traveling to Namibia. We have a new client out there. Namibia is right above South Africa. And at the time, my son is nine months old. My wife is home alone with him. I'm gone for about a week and a half. So I'm in Namibia, I'm training, things go well. Uh, I fly through South Africa, spend a few days there, and now I'm headed home. And on this particular flight, the layover is in Qatar, or as we Americans uh, pronounce it, Qatar, which is right next to Saudi Arabia. And my flight leaves for Houston at about 8.30 in the morning. So I'm in the business lounge, I'm Skyping with my wife, seeing how she's doing, seeing how my son's doing, and my computer's set to South Africa time. So I look at the clock, it says seven o'clock, I got an hour and a half, I'm, I'm good to go. But then this terrible realization washes over me that I'm in a different time zone. So I do a quick check online and I, I verify, it's not seven o'clock, it's actually eight o'clock, so I gotta get to my flight. So I say goodbye to my wife, I pack up my things, I hightail it over to the gate. And the gate's about 15 minutes away, it turns out. So I don't get there till about 8.20. And I roll up there, place is completely deserted, there's not a soul there, no agents, nothing. I've missed my flight. And I'm very upset about that. I've never, and as far as I can remember, missed a flight. I've flown dozens of times. I, I wanna say hundreds, but maybe not that many, but I've flown a lot. Never miss a flight. And normally when I fly, I fly business class, uh, at least internationally. It's very difficult for me to fly 20, 30, sometimes 40 hours in coach, in the back, by the bathroom, in the middle seat next to two screaming kids. And I gotta get up in the morning and train, hit the ground running for sometimes tw uh, 12 hours a day for two, three weeks. But this particular client was giving me flack. They were not trying to give me a business class ticket, so I had to negotiate back and forth with them and pull their arm, as it were, to get this ticket, business class. So, so here I am, I've missed my flight, and I'm upset about it, and so I go, I'm talking to the agent to see what I can do. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a language barrier, but I find out there's not a flight until the next morning. They only have one flight uh, to Houston every day. So I'm saying, you know, what does it take to get this, 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 this flight? How do I get on the next flight in the morning? And so he's on his computer, he's punching away, and he's like, well, I don't think we'll be able to get you business class. Um, and at that point, I didn't really care. I was just trying to get home to my wife and to my son, you know. So if I have to be in the back, 
by the bathroom between two screaming kids in the middle seat, like whatever, just get me out of here. And he's crunching his numbers. He's like, well, it's probably gonna be about three or $4,000 US. But he, he wasn't sure, so he's still checking. So now I'm upset because I know that I have really gone through great effort to convince this client to give me a business class ticket. So I can't go back to them now after having missed my flight and trying to get them to reimburse this extra money that I'm spending. So whatever the cost ends up being, it's got to come out of my pocket. So I'm upset about that. I'm already upset about having to be delayed another day because even whenever I get on the plane, my wife and son is not going to see me for another 20 hours because that's how much flying had to be done from that point. So I'm thinking in my mind, I'm strategizing, and I say a quick prayer, but I'm really thinking about how am I going to get this money and, and put things together. So, you know, I'm just in my mind, can I move this around? I got to use this car. I got to call this, you know, call this person up, whatever. So I'm just kind of making plans in my mind and, and getting kind of panicked because here I am in a bad situation. You know, I'm, I'm overseas. I'm in a strange place. I don't know the language. I don't have a visa. So um, I'm thinking how to make this thing work. So then the agent gets back to me. And, you know, he's been going back and forth with his manager. They're talking furiously in a language I don't understand. And, and they're like, it's actually going to cost more because of lack of availability. And folks, I don't remember what the number was. It might have been, it might have been 8,000. It might have been 10,000. Whatever it was, it was something that no amount of planning or maneuvering on my part was going to give me this money. But an amazing thing happened in that moment. I had this peace that came over me like I'd never felt before. And I sat down and I started praying and thanking God. Because I realized that God, he didn't want me to be out there. He wanted to be home with my family. Like he, he, it was not his plan. There was nothing I could do now. He is essentially taking me out of the equation because now this ticket is priced so high. So I'm just sitting back and praise God. I don't know how he's going to get me out of this, but there's nothing that I can do. So I'm just waiting and allowing him to do what he does best. About 35, 45 minutes later, this lady comes up to me and hands me a red envelope and says, you're good to go in the morning. And when I see the red envelope, I just kind of put my head up and, and I smile. Because for this particular airline, their business class ticket come in a red envelope. So not only am I get to go home in the morning, not only is it not going to cost me a dime, but I don't have to be in the back by the bathroom between two screaming kids uh, in, in the middle seat. Like I'm getting a business class ticket that they said was no longer available. So I'm just praising God. I call my wife, let her know everything's going on. And there was a hotel in the airport. I could stay there. I got to eat for free at the business lounge, some really good food. And just so I knew that this was a setup by God. Next morning, I'm there bright and early. I'm not playing any games. I'm right by my gate and the flight leaves on time, but we don't start boarding until about 8.25. In other words, had it been the previous day, I would have been there on time, coming up at 8.20, but for this particular reason, God wanted to get the glory and teach me a lesson. And just in case you missed a lesson, here it is. Sometimes God puts us in impossible situations just to remove the temptation for us to try to fix things on our own. We pray for God to work something out in our lives, whatever it, whatever it is. And when we just move fast enough, we just kind of roll up our sleeves and say, fine, I'll do it myself. And with this attitude in our hearts, our prayers are fruitless. And, and what's worse is we have the nerve to get mad at God for not answering our prayer or not fast enough when in reality we ask the misc, as James 4 said. What does that mean? Uh, we read these texts in the Bible and we sometimes we construct this hybrid between what the Bible teaches and what the world teaches. So the world talks about positive thinking and optimism and I can do it and, and reciting these mantras to ourselves over and over again, just, just putting in work. And you have these books on success like Think and Grow Rich where the author talks about visualizing what you want in your goals. And the universe rewards those who believe in themselves. And, and I'm not knocking those principles, but we have to understand the missing component, what it is. Because all of that by itself is about self. It's about I can do it, God is not in the equation. 
So as Christians, we kind of take that mentality and then merge it with the Bible. And we're very much self-based. So I'll give you another example. Mark chapter 11, verse 23, is a text that we quote often. And this is Christ speaking, and it says, For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. So we read this and we're like, okay, I just got to believe. I just got to believe. You know, so I, I come up with something, a goal, a, a desire that I want. And so I like, oh, I want a million dollars. I really want a million dollars. So I get on my knees and start praying, Lord, give me a million dollars. Give me a million dollars. I pray. I really believe. I really, really believe he's going to give me a million dollars. And what happens? No money comes. Still broke as a joke. And I get upset like, Lord, what happened? You said that if I believe whatever I believe when I pray, you would give to me. But we can't mix the world's ideologies with God's ideology. And we have to read the Bible in context. So going back to this passage, the previous verse, Mark eleven twenty two, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. That's the missing component. In other words, have faith that God can handle whatever mountain is in your life without you having to stick your nose in it and mess it up. Because now we don't have enough belief the problem is we don't have faith that God can move the mountain. We don't have faith that he is capable of doing things without us having to grab our shovel and start scraping up dirt, trying to move the mountain ourselves. So in many cases, God will put us in impossible situations to encourage us to let God handle it and take all of the glory. But here's the thing. God wants our spiritual muscles of faith to level up. So we shouldn't have to be constantly in these impossible situations just to trust God and have that peace that passes understanding. Maybe, you've, maybe you have someone in your church who was strung out on drugs, and now they're on fire for God, and they're preaching and they're jumping around for joy. They have a great testimony. And they get up and they testify and they say, you know, I would not be the Christian that I am now if I weren't strung out on drugs. But the truth is that God was most likely trying to reach that person back when they had a job and they had a house and they had a family and they were just dabbling with drugs and God was trying to speak to them and they, they weren't listening for whatever reason. So the only way that he could get their attention was by taking away these things and that's how they got on fire for him. So going back to my experience in the Middle East uh, being stranded, the peace that I had when I was quoted that insurmountable price for the plane ticket was the peace that God wanted me to have back when they told me it was only 3000 and I was trying to fix things on my own, how I was going to make these things happen. Even if I ended up having to pay, he wanted me to have the peace that he would take care of it, and he wanted me to pray within that peace to give me the direction that I should go. Whenever we restrict God only to the realm of the impossible, we put limits on him. He doesn't want us just calling on him in the situations that we think are impossible. He wants us picking up that bad phone for every situation, regardless of how possible it may seem to us. Now, all of us have expertise or, or skill sets or, or things that we are confident in our ability to do. Maybe it's your career. You're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're, you're a government worker, you're a contractor, an artist, maybe you're a programmer like myself, or you're a musician, you're a teacher, uh, an administrator, a cook. Maybe you know how to run a business, you know how to run a campaign, you know how to do a fundraiser, uh, invest money, manage money. Maybe you have personal skills in relating to people, counseling uh, kids or young adults or senior citizens. Maybe you're a student, or, but you've already developed some skills that you feel very confident about. Or maybe you have invested, as one author puts it, the 10,000 hours of practice required to achieve mastery in a field. So you trust in those skills implicitly, and that defines your realm of possibility. So any, anything that comes along, you put into a bucket. There are three buckets that we put our problems, our issues, our concerns, our tasks, 
and the first two buckets correspond to the two categories that I mentioned at the beginning of the show that deal with the, the, the limits that we put on God, the two extremes. So the first bucket is the things, the, those things that you think are possible. So you handle them yourself. The second bucket holds the things that you think are impossible even for God. So you just stress and you worry and you fester and you complain. And the third bucket are the things that you give wholeheartedly to God. And this is the one we'll focus on. We'll focus on the first bucket this week. Next week, we'll look at the realm of the impossible. Our case study this week from the Bible comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 14, uh, 15, and 16. And this is talking about King Asa, who was one of the good, the few good kings of Judah. And we actually start with the ideal, bucket number three, where in chapter 14, it says that um, the Ethiopians came out to Judah with an army of about a million men. And Asa sees them, and immediately he calls on God. And verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 14, it says, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord strikes the Ethiopians with fear. They, they, they flee, um, and Asa's army chases them. They defeat them. They ransack the city. They get a whole bunch of spoil. And so, so it's a great victory, great testimony. Now, what's inter interesting about this passage is I used to think that this was an impossible situation, that Asa looked about at this as being impossible because it says in the same chapter that he had about 600,000 men at his disposal. And Ethiopia was coming at him with about a million men plus 300 chariots. And as many folks know, a chariot in those days was tantamount to a tank in today's day. So that really tips the scales in the favor of the enemy. But we have to understand that this was a very plausible situation for Asa to think he could handle on his own. He could have looked upon this as being in his realm of possibility because at that time you had mighty warriors, which, which is what the text says that these 580,000 men that he had were mighty warriors. And we look at that same phrase in 1 Chronicles chapters 11 and 12, we see that David had mighty warriors. And these brothers were ruthless. I mean, you had, I think, Joab's brother, Abishai, he killed 300 men in one battle. Uh, you had one person that killed a lion. You had someone else who went up against a giant unarmed. Uh, the giant had a spear. He took him, killed him with his own spear. Um, you had people who could throw stones and shoot arrows with either the left or the right hand. And in First Chronicles 12, it says that some of these brothers, like the least of them were as good as 100, each one of them. And the greatest of them were worth 1,000 enemy soldiers. Now, I know this is a different time period, but you have to understand the men of Israel were renowned they, for their fighting prowess, for their ability to, 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 to be underhanded, be shorthanded. So it's very possible that Asa had some of these brothers in his squad. But Asa did not consider this to be in his realm of possibility. He trusted in God and God delivered him. And I like how the end of this passage in verse chapter 11, it says, O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you, because in your name we go out against this multitude. Here's the thing. Every challenge you face, whether you think it's possible or not, is God's challenge. When you profess to be a Christian, you have faith in him, you represent him. His name is on the line. So if a challenge gets a better review and you were trusting completely in God, that reflects badly on him. So it's like if you buy a top-of-the-line vacuum cleaner and it's got 100% satisfaction guarantee and it arrives defective, it doesn't work, that reflects badly on the manufacturer. So they're going to do whatever it takes to protect their name because their name is on the line. So they'll send you your money back, no questions asked. But there's a clause that says that if you open it up, you try to fix it, you try to mess with it, you avoid the warranty and you won't get any money. So we have been charged by God, our manufacturer, to not void the warranty. Uh, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made to be wholly reliant on him, and we don't need anything else. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. So just don't void the warranty. Don't get in God's way. Let him do what he does. But now let's look at the other side, bucket chapter 1. And unfortunately, this is kind of backwards because normally 
we do things the wrong way and eventually over time we learn to trust God. But with Asa, um, he gets cocky, he gets kind of comfortable with this victory and so now here comes another situation. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, it says that as a result of this victory, many of the folks in Israel bounced to Judah. Like you remember you had on one side the, the kingdom of Israel that had 10 tribes and the kingdom of Judah represented the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So they're separate entities even though they're all the children of Israel collectively. But the people of Israel are peeping game saying there's something about Asa, the Lord seems to be with them so we're going to bounce, we're going to go over to them because they have something we don't have. And Basha, the king of Israel, doesn't like that, wants to, wants to keep his people with him. So he sends in chapter 16, he sends an army out to Judah to set up a blockade so no one from Israel can go in and no one from Judah can come out. So he's preparing for a siege. He clearly has hostile intentions. But Asa looks upon this as part of his realm of possibilities. Like, I, I can handle it. I can deal with that. So what he does is, you know, at the time, Basha is allied with the king of Syria, who is Benadad. Uh, Syrians are uh, the, the mortal enemies of Israel, but they're mercenaries. Like, everyone has a price, you know? So, so they're working with Israel. And so Asa, instead of going to God, instead of putting that problem into bucket number three, instead of going to the faith toolbox, as it were, he trusted himself. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to, to King Benadad and make him break off his alliance. Whatever, whatever Israel's paying you, I'll double it. And he takes money out of the treasury of the house of the Lord, which is God's money. And he pays Syria, and he works. They break off their alliance, and they join forces with him, and they push back the Israelites, and victory comes. But just because the results are good doesn't mean that God is in it. And, and Asa is harshly rebuked by a prophet of the God. He comes to him in verse 7 and says, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. With the Ethiopians and the Lubin, not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Whenever we put limits on God's power, we also put limits on the blessings that he had planned to give us. So in this, in this case, it says that because he didn't rely on God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from his hands. So essentially, God had the plan perfectly set up. Uh, where by Basha and Israel being allied with Syria, if Asa had gone to God first, Israel would have been taken care of, they would have been pushed back, and a defeat would have come to crush Syria, wipe them out. Because we see later on in Second Chronicles, the Syrians become a serious problem. And all of that would have been averted. So this little victory that King Asa had, that temporarily pushed back the, the Israelites, God had something bigger in store. And he also had peace in mind for them but now they have to fight. So he's like, you know, you want to fight for yourself, for your name instead of my name. I'm going to let you fight. Go ahead and fight. For, so with us, when, God, when it comes to God putting that, moving that mountain in our life and he's not moving fast enough for your liking and you come with your shovel, God had a fleet of bulldozers in route. And all you had to do was wait and let them arrive. Now, now, now once they come, don't get it twisted. Prayer will always lead to an action. It's not like you're sitting back and letting God do all the work. In most cases, um, the bulldozers come, you do some work, got to coordinate, but it would have been far more efficient and you would have had a God-ordained plan instead of a self-ordained plan. But when he sees you out there with that shovel, he's like, well, you know, cancel that order of bulldozers. He says he's got it. She says she's good with the shovel. So let's see if they call back later for help. And we see with King Asa that this became a habit because in verse 12 it says that he got a foot disease and instead of going to God, he trusted his physicians and he died. So what can we learn from this? How do we surrender our realm of possibility and everything in that bucket and dump it into bucket three where we're wholly reliant on God? If you want to eat an elephant, you have to do it in bite sizes. A journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. Whatever your cliche is, we have to get back to basics. We have to go back to formula. Because by nature, we're just not wired to trust God. 
You know, we, we, we study, we put faith in our education, in our degrees, uh, in our expertise, in our titles, our awards, our accolades. And so we just have to be reprogrammed. We have to be reprogrammed by the Holy Spirit. So, so let's, let's look at self-check. First thing I have for you is on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your prayer life? Now, be honest. Are you praying only when you go to church? Or are you only praying when praying what I call protocol prayers? Now, protocol prayer is, like for example, you get up in the morning and you pray. Lord, thank you for waking me this morning. Help me have a good day today, amen. About to eat, Lord, thank you for this meal we're about to have. Uh, please nourish and strengthen our bodies, amen. About to go to bed, now I'm out of sleep. About to go to church, pastor prays, you, you, you bow your head. You have these template prayers where you just change a few words here and there, but you're just using them in different scenarios over and over again. It's like sending a mass email out to God with different components being changed. If that is your style of prayer, you need to get into the habit of praying, of really praying. Lose the templates, uh, lose the reliant on church as being your only excuse for connecting with ultimate power, with infinite power. So here's the suggestion I have for you. And this will work even if you think you have a good prayer life. There's always room for improvement. I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I say I'm satisfied with my prayer life. I rated a 10. <laughs> so Paul admonishes us to pray without ceasing, which seems very illogical. It seems very impractical. Here's a suggestion that I've always give, given folks. If you talk to yourself, most of us, not all of us, talk to ourselves. Just read about that conversation to God. For example, where'd I put my keys? Oh, there they are, bet. Lord, where'd I put my keys? Oh, there they are, thank you, Lord. Or this person needs to move out of my way, I'm gonna lose my mind. Lord, please move this person out of my way or I'm gonna lose my mind. And you find that over time, your conversation with God improved because you recognize who you're talking to. So a little bit more positivity in those interactions, by God's grace. When you talk to yourself now, in many cases, it's about something that you think that is in your realm of possibility. So if you start including God in those discussions, then you get into the habit of not only praying more, but also inviting God into that realm. So eventually you could surrender all of the contents of that bucket to him. Now, it's not going to happen overnight, but this is a process. Second thing I have is making a list of the things that you consider to be in your realm of possibility. At least three things. Maybe things that you handle on a daily basis, a weekly basis, that you consider within your realm of possibility. Maybe they're work-related tasks, maybe you're stay-at-home parents, things you do at home, things that you're confident in your ability to do yourself, whatever it may be. And for each item, I want you to ask yourself one question. How often do I pray about that? And maybe your impulse reaction is like, why would I pray about that? And if that's the case, you need to put an asterisk next to the item on the list and making a point to, to specifically target conversations that you have with yourself about that item and include God in the discussion. So you go to the grocery store and you're buying food and you consider yourself an expert in finding deals or knowing what brand to pick. And you're like, why would I pray about that? That needs to be on your list. Why would I pray as a parent about what should I fix my kids for lunch or for dinner? Uh, why would I pray about which way should I travel to go to work in the morning? All of these things need to be on our list as items we can include in our conversation, and which builds on our existing challenge we had last time, our 30-day practical faith challenge, which, you know, where I picked an item, you, you, I told you to pick an item that you're passionate about, and every time you're tempted to go to that thing, you're, you're, you redirect those efforts towards something that's about God. So. Now, if you have these items, whether it's a task at work, whether it's a presentation, a report you have to do, whatever it is you feel confident in, just start talking to God about those things, and you will see your prayer life over time improve to where you could surrender that realm of possibility into the realm of holy reliant on God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father God, I thank you for living in the realm of both the impossible and the possible. I thank you for challenging us with trials that encourage us to put things into perspective so that we realize that you are the source of our strength, the source of our wisdom, our understanding, our very existence. But we ask that you teach us 
Father, because we're not comfortable being complacent. We don't want to stay where we are. We want to level up. So, and we want to be able to pray without ceasing so that everything we think of, everything we want, we desire becomes congruent with your will. So I ask that you bless us, uh, bless every person who's listening, every person who's watching, whatever the challenges are, whatever their needs may be. Um, give them a return on the faith that they've invested in you and then give them more, give us more so that we can realize the value that a relationship with you has in our lives. Forgive us for our sins and prepare us for your soon coming. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So thank you for watching. If you're watching this live, there is a second episode coming after the break. We appreciate your support and we're looking forward to seeing you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode, episode three of Faith Practically. I am Darren Claxon, and in this session, we'll continue our conversation from last time about the ways in which we put limits on God. We'll explore why it seems we face the same impossible trials over and over again, and we'll see a clear example of insanity in the Bible. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, not my will, but thine be done. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to thank you all for your feedback, for the ideas you've sent to us. You know, I've got some great ideas for future shows from some of you. And I did want to highlight one particular piece of feedback that's going to be relevant for today's show. So last episode, we talked about how God sometimes puts limits or puts us in impossible situations just to remove the temptation that we have to try to fix things on our own and mess it up. But he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to level up so we're not always having to be in some dire scenario to call on him. Because when we restrict God only to the realm of the possible, of the impossible, we put limitations on him. We put limitations on the blessing that he has for us. So a couple of folks I spoke with uh, were like, well, do we really have to go to God for every single little thing in our lives? Doesn't God give us the freedom and, and, and the latitude to figure out some things of our own and make some decisions ourselves? And I would agree with that within this context. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is to be like Christ and to have the mind of Christ where our thoughts and our actions and our desires are in line with his will. But we know it's a process of a lifetime. It's not going to happen just like that. But along the way, we should see some glimpses of that happening to where we hear that still small voice telling us this is the way walking in it. And we're not even able to perceive that. We just act impulsively and naturally are obedient to God. And, and usually, in my experience, it's, it's, it's an interaction with someone. It's a split-second decision. Uh, you meet someone, they ask your opinion about something. Someone wants you to pray over them or pray for them, exhort them in something they're going through. The example that was given to me by this individual was that they helped a homeless person 
and they had no prior prayer, no inclination to do so, but they just kind of helped them. They prayed over them, and after the fact, they had this peace that they had been directed by God, and they had this peace about it, so they were blessing. And I would contend that that is a glimpse of God working and, 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 and that a relationship has been cultivated over time with God. So we get in the habit of praying before we leave the house. We know it's a spiritual battle out there. Uh, Ephesians 6, 12 is in full effect. And we move on instinct in some situations, on godly instinct. But let's not be complacent where we get in the habit of, even though we have a good relationship with God, we're used to praying because we have success. As we saw last time, we get cocky and we decide to make uh, bigger, more conscious decisions on our own. Because when we do that, there's always this temptation when success comes to take some credit for it, even just a little bit of credit, um, like we did something. So regardless of where we are in our spiritual walk, we want to cultivate this habit of going to God early and often. So, so keep the feedback coming. Today's episode is part two of Putting Limits on God, and it's entitled, Let Go of Your Insanity. In uh, last time, we talked about buckets. Whatever problem you have that comes around or a concern or a trial, you put it into a, a one of three buckets. The first bucket, which we discussed last time, was where you put the things that you think are possible, that you can do on your own, so you just kind of handle them without, without getting God involved. Versus the third bucket, where you put in those things that you give wholeheartedly to God. You let him take care of it. You have this peace uh, and trust that he is going to see it through. So today we'll look at the second bucket, those things that we, that we think are too impossible, even for God. When you put something into that bucket, you do one of several things or more. First thing you might do is stress and, and you worry and you doubt and you're just up late nights, you can't sleep, you're tossing and turning, you're, you're frustrated. Maybe it affects your health, your blood pressure skyrockets, you have ulcers, you have panic attacks and anxiety because you can't solve the problem and in your mind, neither can God. Second thing you might do is complain or, or feel sorry for yourself, have this pity party. And this is particularly counterproductive when you do it vocally in the presence of people who know that you call yourself a Christian. You know, so you always have to think about the testimony that you're giving to someone who's not a Christian or someone who's on the fence or even someone who is a Christian, even if later on you give a testimony of how good God is, which we'll discuss later. Uh, it's just not a good look. And the third thing that you might try to do is, is help God out. Uh, maybe it's something that, that God has, has, has said he's going to do, something you've been wrestling with because it seems impossible and it's outside of your control and you're tired of waiting on him, so you just kind of try to help them out, do things yourself. And you're basically dumping contents between those first two buckets, before the, between the impossible bucket and the possible bucket, and that's just creating frustration for you. Ask Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael how that whole helping God out things works. works. Here's the thing. If you were to look back in your life at the impossible trials that you face, even though the exterior trappings may be different, um, at the core, it's the same trial. And there's certain common denominators that you can extract when you examine those trials. Think about a woman who is always attracted to control freaks, to men who love to be in control, in serious control. And it doesn't matter, all the men, they look different, they dress different, they have different demeanors, they have careers that are different, but inside it's the same person. And she's always drawn to these men like a moth to the flame burned by the fire. And the relationship ends up being volatile. She barely gets out by the skin of her teeth. And she's like, I'm never going through that situation again. I'm never dating that kind of man again. But what do you know? Next man comes along who looks different, talks different, acts different, walks different, ends up being the same situation. And she's throwing up her hands and disgust, like, why do I just keep finding these losers? Why don't these men leave me alone? But the problem is there's something inside of her that attracts these type of men to her and attracts her to them. And until she changes, she will continue to attract that same person who will in, uh, inevitably bring pain and suffering into her life. And that man will be attractive to her. In other words, the men that would be good for her, either she pushes them away with what's inside of her, she repels them, or she's just not attracted to them. So those individuals continue to coming into her life 
uh, should be an indication that she needs to change, and hopefully that will inspire her to do so. Likewise, something inside of us attracts the same impossible situations, trials, dressed differently over and over again, uh, and until we change, we'll keep going through them. They'll be disguised differently, but this is God's way of exposing and sewing up a breach in our spiritual character. Maybe you constantly have financial struggles, and that could be for a lot of reasons. Maybe you're just bad with money, just irresponsible, and God's trying to step your game up. Maybe you're good with money, but you're not faithful with returning tithes. So God wants you to up your faith, where you claim his promise and test him that he will not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that will not room enough to receive it. You know the whole spiel. Or maybe you're good with money, you're responsible, you're faithful with tithe giving, but God knows that deep down you either really love having money or you're just terrified or paranoid of not having money. So he'll keep putting you in situations where you don't have money to see if your response of fear of, or paranoia changes, to see if that love of money or fear could be superseded by your trust and peace that he has you covered. Maybe you're having impossible situations at your job where it doesn't matter who your team with, doesn't matter who your coworkers are, doesn't matter who your boss is, you just can't get along with these folks. And it's seriously jeopardizing your career uh, maybe you've been written up, maybe you're about to be fired, you just can't get along, and, or maybe you're just miserable. You just dread going to work every morning because you know you're going to get into it with this person. And it could be that legit people are difficult, and they're trying to make your life difficult. And this is God's way of fortifying your patience. Uh, this is a way of teaching you unconditional love, which you will never gain if everyone in your life is lovable. So, so maybe this is just a setup by God for that. Maybe there's something in your personality. Maybe something in your temperament. You know, if someone can push your button by saying something, someone disagrees with you, someone talks about politics or a theology that you don't like and you fly off the handle, guess what? God's going to keep sending people to do that until your response changes. So when you have a trial, what's the first bucket that you put it into? If it's not bucket three, which is reliant on God, and, and you're constantly putting in buckets one or two, and you're expecting the result to change, you're expecting the trial to go away, there's a word for that. It's called insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. In the Bible, the clearest and most tragic example of insanity is the story of the children of Israel. Um, and we'll, we'll summarize this thing. It's a lot of text. Um, um, I want to pull out this case study so we can understand how this thing works and see ourselves in it. So we know the story of the children of Israel. Um, they were enslaved for hundreds of years. Um, they were dealing with all kinds of, 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 of inhumane treatment by the Egyptians. And they cry out to God for help. He sends Moses as deliverer. And through the course of 10 plagues, there was this showdown between Jehovah, the true God, and these false gods of Egypt, whether it was the Nile River, whether it was the sun god, whether it was the fertility god. And God, of course, was victorious, and in miraculous fashion, Pharaoh lets them go, and they're on their way to the promised land. And in Exodus 13, 17, we see a very curious passage. The Bible says, Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not leave them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Here's how that text speaks to me. As impossible as your trial seems to be, God has measured it beforehand and determined that you can handle it. You know, so, so that tri those trials you're going through now would feel like a sweetest massage compared to what Satan really has in store for you. Like if he had his way, he would take you out every second of every minute of every day. And most of those trials that would come your way, God is blocking them. He's like, nah, he can't handle it. Like, nah, if, if I let that, that through, she would lose her faith altogether. So the ones that do slip through, they are tailored by God, and they are our size. With the children of Israel, despite the mountain of evidence that God gave them while freeing them from Pharaoh's hand, he knew that it would be too much for them to, to go through the shortest distance of two points and go through Philistine territory. But the Red Sea was just their size. And, you know, the count of the Red Sea is, by my count, the first of 10 impossible trials 
that God had for his people. Ten tests. And there was always one thing in, pop, in, in common. It was some life-threatening situation where they had to rely wholly on God and for him to deliver them and provide their needs. And each time the response was the same. There was never a time in these passages where they had a different response. So with the Red Sea, uh, chapter 14, they see they're related to a chap, trap. Pharaoh's armies are on one side, Red Sea's on the other, wilderness is closing them in, and how do they respond? They complain rigorously. And God in his mercy, he doesn't trip. He tells them what the right response is. Stand still and witness the salvation of the Lord. He, he, he parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. The Egyptians drown. And in Exodus chapter 15, they sing this wonderful song of praise and rejoicing that lasts like 20 verses. But later in the same chapter, the song of praise is still stuck in their heads. Here comes test number two in verse 22, where they're trying to find water in the wilderness, and they've been unsuccessful, and they get to the city of Merah, and the only water they can find is too bitter to drink. Now, do you think at that point they remember the ten plagues, how God separate them from the land of Egypt, and how the last seven plagues only affected the, the, the Egyptians? You think they remember the miraculous uh, deliverance, the plunder they took from Egypt on the way out, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, and their, their song of praise? No. What was the response? Complaining. Now, we always have to read ourselves into the narratives that we encounter in the Bible. You know, let's not distance ourselves. Let's not throw shade at them like we don't do the same thing. Because we have impossible scenarios that come up in our lives. And what's our first response? Stress, complain, doubt, wallowing in self-pity. And, and guess what? When God delivers anyhow, uh, we are in church next week screaming about how good God is. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. We're singing these songs. But the very next day, a phone call comes with bad news about a loved one or, or some unexpected, unexpected bill that we can't pay or a bad score on a test that we studied extra hard on that's going to mess up our final grade. And our tune changes. And But God is looking for our testimony there. That's when he wants to see our faith, not after it. And this is what the children of Israel were doing. And in Exodus 16, we see test number three, where they have no food. And the response is the same. Not one of faith, not one where they're using bucket three and turning it over to God, but complaining and engaging in uh, revisionist history. Like God would, you know, life was so good back then in Egypt where they had all this food to eat and they were living the lap of luxury. But God in his mercy delivered them anyhow and rained manna from heaven. Test four, same chapter. God tells them to trust them that the manna they gather on the sixth day, which under normal circumstances would rot if they kept it overnight. Um, he wanted them to trust that it would remain intact on the seventh day, the Sabbath, where they were told not to go out and gather. And it did. And, and they saw evidence of this week after week, but the Bible portrays God's frustration, saying how long will they keep going time after time, looking for manna on the Sabbath day, not finding any, not trusting uh, my word. That's what God's like. Test 5 is chapter 17. Again, the children of Israel have no water. They're about to stone Moses. And again, God comes through in miraculous fashion. Water flows from the rock. So my question is, did they learn anything? Did they grow spiritually? Because here it is. God is sending the same trial, dressed up in different ways, giving more and more evidence of his faithfulness to see if their response would, train, would, would change, see if they would let go of their insanity, and see if they would seek him with all, their, with all their heart, even though God didn't provide on their timetable. What have you learned from your, tri from your trials? How much evidence has God shown you of his faithfulness? What has your response been? Do you look back on your life in the past with nostalgia, talking about the good old days, forgetting about how rough those times really were and how God delivered you through them. This is an expression that you don't learn anything the second time you're kicked by a mule. Like, 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 like once you walk behind that thing and you get kicked by it and you feel that pain, that should discourage you from ever doing that again. But when you keep doing it, that is insanity. And when God keeps sending the same trial over and over again and we're not changing our response, we're not moving, he has to up the ante. And with the children of Israel, trial number six comes. It's Exodus 32. Moses has been gone a little bit too long on the mountain. And they start to panic. Like, what happens if we get attacked? 
Who's going to provide a way of escape? What happens if we need food? We need somebody to rain manna from heaven. What if we are thirsty and we need someone to strike the rock or cut down a tree so we can have water or, or raise their hands to intercede on our behalf? So they're saying, let's make our own tangible, uh, visible, practical God. So they fashion the golden calf. Moses comes down. He's angry. Uh, God is angry. He commands the Levites to wipe out 3,000 of them. Test number seven. They've been wandering aimlessly in Numbers 11, and the people start to complain, so God sends fire to consume them in the camp. Same chapter, test number eight. They complain about the manna, which has been falling faithfully. This thing is a miracle. We've never seen anything like that in 2019. They're taking it for granted. They're tired of it. They're like, you know, how many ways can we fry? Can we break? Can we fricassee this thing? We want some KFC. We want some two-piece in a biscuit. We want some, some, some banchan wings. And God is like, okay, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. But you're going to be eating it not one, not two, not five, not ten, not, but for a whole month. It's going to be coming out of your eyeballs because I'm tired of your same response of insanity, uh, ignoring all the times I did the impossible to deliver you. And the Bible says while the meat was still in their teeth, he struck them with the plague. He had to up the ante because they just were not getting the picture. Test number nine. Numbers 13, they send 12 spies to the land of Canaan. This is a promised land where God told them that he would provide them, that he would drive out all the idolaters who possess the region, and that would be their inheritance for their children and their children's children forever. Same test, uh, same problem of an impossible situation that required them to rely wholeheartedly on God. Spies go out there, and 10 of them use bucket number two. Like, we can't do it. The, the people are too, too numerous, too big. We were like grasshoppers in their eyes, and they sway the crowd to where everyone starts wailing and complaining, and, and that leads to test number 10. Because two of the spies actually use bucket number three. Joshua and Caleb remind the people of God's promise of victory, remind him of all the things that God had done and that his presence meant they had no reason to fear. And remember, Joshua and Caleb were not some Johnny-come-latelys. Like, like they, these were men of military renown. They had influence. They had some credibility. So, so their voice should have been heeded. How the children of Israel respond. Bump these fools. Let's stone them and elect a new leader to take us back to Egypt. I mean, this is completely inconceivable. Clearly, they had learned nothing from going through those trials and being delivered from them. Because now they have the audacity to purpose in their heart to go back to a trial that God had already delivered them from. This was the last straw. And in Numbers 14 and 11, God says, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? And despite um, uh, Moses interceding on behalf of the people to, for God to save them, God's like, nah, the wheels are already in motion. I can't call out the dogs of war. And they've grieved my spirit to such a point where all y'all who are 20 years or older are going to die off in the wilderness. You know, they're going to be wandering around one year for every day that you are out there spying. For 40 days, you're going to be wandering for 40 days, 40 years, aimlessly, for not, and, and not be able to get in because of your unbelief. Let's see this as an object lesson for us to look in the mirror and point out some of our own deficiencies. Because we like testimonies. We love, you know, to sing us praises to kind of swap war stories with people talking about the things that God has done for us. But don't act like you was down with God the whole time. Don't act like, like, like you weren't doubting and complaining and, and just kind of pulling your hair out, fixing things on your own or trying to fix, on your own, fix things on your own. Because it's so easy to give a testimony after God has delivered you. What God wants is your testimony to be in the midst of a trial or at the beginning of a trial. Because if it's only at the end, you know, that while that might benefit someone else and it should remind you, if your response doesn't change, it does nothing for you. There's nothing to be learned the second time you get kicked by a mule. Most of us, we're so happy to be out of the trial that we were in that we forget the experience and we miss the lesson. So let's go into self-check. Ask yourself this question. How many times in the past year has God parted some red seas for you? How many times has he rained some manna from heaven, sprung up some, some water from the rock in your life? 
And it may not have been as miraculous as what we see in the Bible, but it was just enough that you know that you cannot attribute to anything else, no coincidence, no happenstance. Like, you know God is the one who came through for you. And while each of those trials may be dressed differently on the outside, ask yourself, do you find that there is at, at the core uh, a commonality between those same trials? Is there something in your character? Um, is there some common denominator going through those that are behind these trials? What is your initial response to the trials? Has it been one of faith and trusting in God, or has it been one of worrying and complaining and disgust? Because check this, Christ told us that we will have trials. Like, ain't no getting around it. Paul promised that if you want to be godly, you will go through tribulation and persecution. So trouble's coming regardless, you know? So my charge to you is, is, is don't struggle for, for nothing. Don't struggle for free. Get paid with spiritual riches, with, with spiritual growth for your trials, and level up. You know, I'm always talking to some of the guys I mentored back in Arizona, some of the young men. They're like, why are you always talking bad about video games? Well, one of the good things about video games is it teaches us that you cannot uh, go to level two unless you've passed level one. And if that same part of the game, um, you, you, you keep dying, you keep losing your life, until you get past it, you're going to be stuck there. And if you're making the same move that's causing that problem for you to die, then you have to change the move, otherwise you're never going to progress. Some of us have been stuck in a cycle of futility, stuck at that same level in the video game, doing the same thing, responding the same way, wandering in our wilderness for year after year. We're stagnant at the same level of development because God keeps sending that same trial, impossible trial, and, and we've been stuck at the end of the edge of the promised land because of our unbelief. Maybe it's the fear of growth pains, you know, the fear of escaping your comfort zone. What's more important, comfort now or salvation for eternity? Now, God has promised deliverance, so because he has, we have to change our response and let go of our insanity, stand still and witness the salvation of the Lord. So here's what I have for you. In the face of a, of a new or seemingly new insurmountable challenge, we tend to forget about how God led and directed us in the past. It's just so daunting, this, this challenge, this scenario, that we're just incapable of remembering by nature. And one of the things that can help us out of that pattern is having, some, having a record, keeping a prayer journal. So this is my suggestion to you. It doesn't have to be a written journal. You can use a file on your computer. It could be an Excel document, which is what I've done. I have a list of things, that, that you know, prayer requests that I have. Um, and, and, and in, that, in that spreadsheet, you know, every time that you have a problem, or in that journal, every time you have a problem uh, that you want to put into a bucket, it's a prayer request for you or someone else, you put it in your journal, you put the date, you put whatever it is, and when God comes through, not if, when he comes through, you put the resolution, you put the date, and you maintain that journal over time. So now that you have a new problem that comes along on your radar, you can ask yourself, how many times has God delivered me from this particular trial or a similar trial in the past? So if you're struggling to pay bills this month, is this the first time this ever happened? Or did the light bill somehow get taken care of in the past? Did God come through with that in the past? And where before it was just so hazy in your mind, now you can look at your journal and be like, bam, here it is. Here is the evidence that he is faithful, he has come through. And, and this will take some time. You know, it's, it's going to be a fluid changing list where you know, you're not going to remember everything. So you need to be praying for God to reveal those things as far back as you can remember. If you need to ask parents or siblings or friends, uh, do so. And maybe they can help uh, remember some of the things that God has done in your life. And even if it's something that you did not pray about, maybe you were too young to pray or you didn't have the fortitude to pray at that time, uh, but God still came through, put it on your list. Uh, maybe you say, I don't have anything. You know, God hasn't done anything for me. I guarantee you, if you can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, God has done something in your life worth celebrating uh, as evidence of his faithfulness. Now, once you have this, this list, my next challenge for you is to pray boldly, to take off the training wheels, to lose a governor on your car, to remove the limitations in your mind of God's power. You know, God is not limited to what he's done for you in the past. So even if you have, you know, seen that he, 
you know, you needed $200 in the past and he came through, but now you need 2000 So you're like, oh, he can't do that. Remove those barriers from your mind because God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than anything we can ever ask for. Don't be afraid to pray bold prayers. Don't be afraid to pray the promises of God back to him. Don't be afraid to look at your prayer journal and be like, God, yo, you came through here and here and here. I'm claiming these promises. I need you to come through now in this situation. And you're not asking uh, selfishly or, or disrespectfully. You're acting because you're trying to grow your relationship with him and take your faith to the next level. So let's do that. Let's keep this, this, this prayer journal going. Anytime you can think of something you can think of after the fact, just go ahead and plug it in there. Keep that going, and we'll keep growing. And over time, hopefully, we should see those limitations in our mind go away and get into the practice of putting things into bucket three, reliant on God. Inspire our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for being a faithful God. I thank you for the evidence that you've given us in your word of how faithful you were to your people. And I thank you for what you've done in our lives. Even though we may not remember and we're not aware of all the things that you've done, uh, you've been there for us, you've protected for us from things that we, 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 we couldn't see and we didn't even know that you were working in our lives. But I'm, thinking, I'm asking that you reveal, um, particularly to those of us who can't remember those things, maybe because we're depressed, we're downtrodden, I'm asking that you would enlighten us and encourage us, that you be close to us, that you give us a peace that passes understanding that would guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus so we won't be anxious for anything and, and, or, or have the, the desire to do things on our own, but to look to you from whence cometh our strength. Help us on this journey. You know, we don't want to be stuck at the edge of the promised land because of our unbelief. We want the full complement of blessings that you have promised every single one of us who loves you and endures to the end. So see us through that end. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for watching, and we will see you next month. God, God bless.